when I had come down this hill, I had seen this creature cross the road. It would have ripped my locked door from my truck, extracted me from my vehicle, and there would have been a damn thing I could have done about it. This thing, I got to notice in its eyes. Its eyes was real, real evil, real sinister looking. You know, the look it was giving me. Welcome to Bigfoot Hotspot Radio, Sasquatch Chronicles. I'm your host, Wes, along with my brother, Woody, and researcher, author, and friend, William Jeffy. Let's start the show. This episode is brought to you by Audible.com. Go to audibletrial.com forward slash Bigfoot Hotspot for your first 30-day trial and your first free downloadable book. Looks like we have a call here from 509. John from Washington. John, you want to tell us about your encounter? Well, it, there really wasn't that much to it. But, you know, I was just a kid in high school. I seen something out there. I don't know what it was. I was out hunting deer and had a thirty thirty in my hand. And if I uh, wouldn't been so surprised, I might have shot it. <laughs> yeah. But whatever it was, it wasn't deer. Uh, it ran real fast. I had circled it twice. It was a uh, little knoll out there, and I was you know, looking for some deer and walked around it once and said, well, I'm going to go back around again. And as I was coming around, something shot out in front of me. You know, the thing that I still remember is it turned around and looked at me. <laughs> and I had almost a human face. And that one really surprised me. What, what part time, of the country was this in? Belfry, Montana, which is a little, oh, you're probably not familiar with it. It's out of Red Lodge, about 60 miles out of Cody, Wyoming. The other encounter I had, I was working on a lower granite dam on the Snake River. I was out inspecting uh, some switchgear. I'm an electrical engineer, and I was looking at some equipment they had out there. And I heard this noise. I looked upon the bluff, and there was two of them. One of them was standing up tall. Another one was squatted down. Okay. And I, I kept my eye on them a bit, and I, uh, I started walking away. I was going to get behind some equipment so I could get a better look at them. When I got there, they were gone, you know. Wow. And that one, I'm not sure. Uh, they were certainly ape-like. Yeah. And it was probably, oh, 150 yards from where I was. They were up, oh, probably 70 feet above me on a bluff. And that's it. Well, and the first one, that, that uh, did it run past you? or it, what did No, it, run, what was... it squirted out right in front of me. I was, like I said, I was hunting deer. I had just come back around. It was kind of just imagine a, a knoll, a big mound of earth there. And, uh, and 
Christ, what was I? This was 1958. Oh, it's wow. It's been many, many years ago. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it ran, and it ran really fast, and it was more like a lope. It finally, it, it, my memory says it did run on four lay, or four feet. Right. Like it came down on its front and was, you know, helping it run, but then it turned around and looked at me. You know, that was the, the spooky thing. It's a good thing I didn't shoot at it. You know, I know it wasn't human, but it was running very fast. Would you say it ran more like a chimp? More like a, a lope. You know, it was loping. When it, when it went to all fours, it was loping. Yeah, I guess like a chimp. Uh, but its its hind legs were way up in the air. Like, it, you know, the legs appeared to be longer than its arms. And I know that doesn't fit the description of... Uh, of this Sasquatch or whatever you guys call it, you're all looking for. Uh, but it was enough, you know, I've been hunting all my life and shot many, many deer, and this was not a deer, and it wasn't yeah. any animal that I'd ever seen out there. Did the first one look much different than the yes, second? Yes, it did. It did. It looked quite a bit different. Uh, the first, the second two were kind of a, a real dark brown color. They were very hairy, you know, almost black. Uh, and this one was a real light brown. Did it have hair on the face or anything like that? No, not that I can remember. Again, you know, you're taking me back a lot of years, but uh, yeah. I don't remember much hair on the face other than the fact that it looked at me. You know, it looked like a face. It you yeah. know, didn't have a, a long snout. It didn't have uh, any fangs hanging out of it. It wasn't a, a cougar. It, I'm sure you know, it wasn't a bear. You know, it wasn't anything I was ever familiar with. So whatever it was, like I said, ran real fast. What was going through your mind when you when you saw it? <laughs> I was mostly surprised, you know, and afterthought is why didn't I? I had my thirty thirty right in my hand, you know, I could have got it probably pretty easy. Yeah. Uh, but it was just such a surprise that I didn't shoot, and it was so fast that it was out of range real quick. Now the second one, you know, they were, you know, I could the second two were ape like, no question about it. Uh, one of them was, you know, standing up. The other was haunched down. One of them was, you know, fairly big. Of course, it was hard to tell that far away, but the second one in relation was small. It probably, the way it was haunched down was about third the size of the first one, you know, as far as height. Of course, I didn't yeah. know how high it was. I didn't see it stand up. And that one, you know, I was doing some work up there. I'm not so sure that somebody was, you know, trying to pull something up there. I don't know why they would do that, but uh, that one looked more like ape-like than anything I'd ever seen. What's your take on it now, looking back, having these encounters? Well, I'm, I'm thinking that there might have been some guys up around the dam. I was working at Lower Granite Dam, and that maybe they were, you know, trying some foolhardy fooling, you know, hoping that I'd come back and say, oh, God, guess what i seen out there. Uh, I didn't do that because, you know, if they had set it up, I didn't want to fall into their trap. There's only a few people I ever told about it. One of them was my daughter. Now, now you guys. My my brother and myself, we've been hunters our whole life. When we came across them for the first time, uh, it kind of throws you off a little bit. I mean, you're not really sure. I'm sure you've come across bear. I'm sure you've come across cougar, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. deer, and elk. And then you see something like this, it throws you off. You don't You don't really know what to think of it. Well, it did because, you know, there's very, in fact, I can't remember ever, coming home without deer. Of course, back then, you could get two deer, bear, and elk for five bucks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <This is in> Montana. <laughs> yeah. Nowadays, uh, you cost you 
side of beef to get a, a, a tag. But but then, you know, it was in my little 3030. It's all I ever used. You know, I could have, I thinking back, I probably could have hit it. Yeah. Uh, but it was just such a shock, you know, what the hell is that? Yeah, nobody ever expects to encounter something like that. So and oh. it doesn't really fit into anything you're familiar with, so it is a big shock. Yeah, it is. You know, you just don't shoot at something you don't know what it is. Right. Uh, but that, you know, that's that's my tale, guys. Uh, I wish I had more for you. They didn't have cell phones back then. Yeah. <laughs> to take a picture with. Yeah. And uh, they didn't. I didn't have any cameras or anything on the second occasion either. So. Well, you know, a lot of times these things happen so quick. Even if you had a camera on you, you're yeah. probably not going to take a picture anyway. Well, you know, the, I'm not sure. They must, whatever it was on the second occasion, must have seen me because I was down below them. If they didn't yeah. see me right away, they must have seen me when I started walking to cover. You know, so I could lean up against something and look at them. Then when I looked back up, they were gone. You know, no trace of them anywhere. And, that, and those said- could have been real. You know, those could have been uh, real. Uh, of course, you know, along the Snake River there, it's not what you look at as forest area. It's more of a prairie type. Right. Uh, you know, go to Google Maps and you'll see the land up there. Uh, I don't think there'd be a whole lot of cover for, you know, something that big. I've seen what I've seen. How do you feel about it today after having those encounters? I mean, well, has it changed your you know, outlook? It, it's made kind of a believer in me. I know there's something out there. You know, how many years did it take to find the gorilla? Uh, you know, in Africa. Right. Uh, long time, long time. It's, uh, you know, there there's probably something out there that we don't know about. In fact, there's probably a whole lot more out there that we don't know about. John, we sure appreciate being on the show tonight. You bet. You All guys right. uh, keep after it. <laughs> yeah, thanks, John. Thank you. Thanks, John. Bye-bye. Tonight on the show we have Doug, and we're using that name. We're not using his real name to uh, protect his anonymity. Uh, Doug's had a number of uh, very interesting situations he'd like to tell us tonight. You and I have chatted a little bit on Facebook. Now, you found tracks at least three times, right? So let's yes. go back before the first time you found tracks or anything, and I always ask people before they had any kind of exposure to this subject, what was their knowledge about the subject prior to that first time? Okay, so in 1974, my grandfather, he was a logger. I grew up in Hood River, Oregon, and um, my grandfather was a logger. My dad was a logger. My great-granddad was a logger. And um, Anyway, my grandfather was logging up above Hood River uh, in 1974. Uh, he was working the hoot owl. He was loading logs, and he saw one of these creatures at the edge of a clear cut from his yarder or from his loader, excuse me. And he had never, you know, heard anything about this or really known anything about it. And he saw it and, uh, you know, he said it was a very large creature. It, um, it had very long arms, uh, more disproportionate to than that of a man. It didn't have a neck. It didn't seem like it had a neck and it had very broad shoulders. He said it walked with a glide, and it, it came out of the timber and was walking along the edge of this clear cut. My grandpa saw it for a few minutes, and then it just walked off down the hill. And then the next day, um, they were out there again. The loggers that were working down in the rigging setting chokers uh, had a real close-up of the thing. They were setting chokers in the brush along the clear cut edge. And this thing came out of the brush and looked at them. Probably about, they, uh, 
probably about 50 feet away. Foreman Osborne, or Furman Osborne, was one of the choker setters. He saw it, and he actually chased it into the timber, and he lost it eventually. Um, but that was the first time I'd heard about it. My grandpa had talked about it and talked about that encounter, and but I had, you know, I had never seen one at that point. I just kind of grew up hearing about it. Well, I was going to say, did he did he mention if the logger, other loggers had talked about anything like that? Apparently they didn't if he didn't know, you know, prior to that uh, first sighting. No, because a lot of those guys, you know, my, my, my grandfather and his dad had moved up to Oregon from Kansas during the Depression, and a lot of the loggers there had come from either, you know, the Midwest or North Carolina to log, and so they had never heard of this thing before. But they had no idea what they were getting into. <laughs> no, no. And something interesting with that, because uh, I know, Will, you've talked about this uh, with the Native American lore and legends about these things being right. cannibals. My grandpa was also an artist and a carver. He he was a wood carver. He would carve, you know, wooden, you know, figures, you know, of um, you know, soldiers and mountain men and Indians and Vikings and things like that. And he carved these, you know, figurines of what these these Sasquatches looked like of what he saw. And he he put a couple of them in this uh, Photoshop in Hood River, and this was back in the 70s, I believe. And he told me that. He was in there, He, you know, he had him in there, and um, there was a local native woman that was in there at the time that he had these, you know, Bigfoot carvings in there. And he said that she freaked out, you know. she was, she. was He said that she kept saying, cannibal, cannibal. These things are cannibals. She was just, she was freaked out by seeing these things. Wow. And, yeah, yeah, and I know I've heard you say that multiple times about that, and I've read about it, and that was one thing I thought I'd share about that. Um, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty common, especially in the Pacific Northwest. Absolutely. When was the first time you came across any sort of evidence? Um, okay, so in the mid-'80s, um, I was just a kid. My dad was working up. My dad would log. He was a timber faller by trade, and after the cutting season, um, he would go up into the high country with the other timber cutters, and they would cut fur boughs you know, sent them to Portland and make, you know, for money for Christmas wreaths. And they were up above uh, Hood River, up near Mount Hood, cutting fur boughs for Christmas wreaths. And, you know, there was snow on the ground, and they found tracks in the snow. And my dad took my mom and myself and my brother up to get a second look at these things. I mean, they looked like a human footprint, but they were, you know, at least 20 inches long, and, you know, it had a very large stride. It walked in a straight line. The weird thing is they, they disappeared. They they just kind of vanished, and that was in the mid-'80s. And then about a year or two later, um, my dad and my uncle found more tracks in the snow near uh, a, a small place called D, Oregon, which is between Hood River and Parkdale, Oregon. And uh, they found tracks, and within that same year, a lot of the locals around there had heard vocalizations. And in 2005, I was working as a forest uh, worker uh, near Yakima by the Yakima Reservation, and I was out alone, and I stumbled across some tracks, and I had never really seen tracks other than those ones I'd seen when I was a kid, but I was so young, I didn't really remember them. And I, I saw these tracks in the ground. It was clear as day. There was no snow. And I, I thought it was a bear, but I started looking at him closer, and I was like, okay, this is a human footprint. You know, I know the difference between a bear track and a human track. And black bears, which live in that area, don't have tracks, you know, 16, 17 inches long. 
No, exactly. Um, and, and and that area is very powdery, the, the dirt. So trash yes. fill up crystal clear in it. Right. And it was in an area where most people don't go. The only people that would have possibly been in there were Native Americans from the Yakima tribe. And Native Americans don't walk around out in the bush without any shoes on. It's just stupid. No, they don't have 16-inch long feet either. Yeah. And then after that, after I'd seen those tracks, uh, my interest started coming back because I'd sort of lost it. I had a I had an Indian buddy in college. I went to the University of Idaho and studied forestry there. And I had an Indian buddy in my forestry classes that we, we became friends and we studied together and hunted together. And I asked him, because he was from the Colville Reservation on the east side. Right. And I, I, I decided to ask him what he knew about the subject, if anything. And he told me some pretty interesting things. And he said he had had an encounter with one of these things with his family uh, when he lived on the reservation. Well, he started the conversation basically with the, his people, the Colville people, had a an understanding with these things apparently, and that what that understanding was is that the Indian people would go up into the high country and pick huckleberries in the daytime. They would leave before it got dark and go back home, and they would let what they called stick Indians mm-hmm. uh, come out at night to pick huckleberries. And he said it was it was him and his mother and his sister. Uh, and they were out picking huckleberries, and they had stayed till dark, and they hadn't left yet. And they they immediately caught the whiff of just a a, a terrible smell, and just ungodly smell they had never smelled before. His mother apparently knew what it was, and she offered him and his sister to to pack up their their uh, berry picking baskets and, and and skin out of there. And they did that, and uh, they they got that you know they smelled it and. You know, him and his sister didn't know what it was, and it, it started following them. They could hear it. They got, you know, brief glimpses of it through the trees, and it was throwing things at them. Uh, he said it was throwing rocks and sticks at them, and they were very scared. And they skinned out down to the car, and they heard it give off this just uh, terrifying yell or scream. Um, they just, it was just terrifying to them and they got in their car and left and they never went back to that area. And he wasn't very I, happy with them being there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. And I, I, at that point in time, I, the only, the only Bigfoot database that I knew of was the BFRO. So I, after he told me that story, I, I went straight to the BFRO, I got on my computer and I, I, I got to their soundboard that has, you know, the Pialb screamer and all those other sounds. I played some of them. And he narrowed it down to, I think it was a sound, it was a recording, I think, in Northern California, like Del Norte County or something. Mm-hmm. But he said, yeah, that's exactly what this thing sounded like. You know, that was just a, you know, another uh, confirmation to this uh, phenomenon to me, having a good friend, especially a Native friend, tell me that. And then in 2006, I was working up near Cleella. In the, in the, on the weekends, I do, I do my forestry work during the weekdays, and on the weekends, I drive home to Stevenson, uh, where my mother and brothers lived, and they lived actually north of Stevenson near Stabler on the Wind River. Right. I know that area. Okay. In that summer, my brothers and I, and I have two younger brothers, um, and we would go out in the woods and, you know, um, practice primitive skills, making you know, shelters and, and practicing making primitive fire and tracking and, and, and those kinds of things. And we were just out, you know, dinking around in the woods near the Wind River, and we walked down on the Wind River, and we actually were getting ready to cross the river 
to build a camp on the other side and we came across some tracks in the in the sand they were just massive tracks and they were human looking tracks and we 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 automatically knew what they were and of course my brothers living in that area you know they they actually knew people that had seen these things and it wasn't something uncommon for the area yeah exactly um, i worked that area pretty extensively back from about 1986 to 1998, and that was one of the main areas that I worked over there on the Wind River, north of Carson. That's that's always been a very active area. Yeah, and and actually, somebody that I work with, used to, they were working in that area, and they were planting trees, and they had a tree planting crew up there, and there was probably I don't know, 15 plus people up there planting trees, and everybody saw a Sasquatch up there. They were planting trees, and they saw the thing. It was clear as day. In 2008, my mother and my two brothers, they like I said, they live uh, north of Stevenson there near Stabler. And they have a house that, that it's just right above the Wind River. And where they live in Stabler, you know, there's like a flat bench. And then there's a big canyon that drops down from that bench into the river. It's a big gorge. And, and it just sits right on top. Their house sits right on top of that bench before it drops down into the river. Um, so in 2008... Um, my my brothers and my mother actually heard one of these things. It was it was down in that gorge, uh, down by the river, and it it was hooting and hollering. I mean, it was very loud. My brothers are avid hunters and outdoorsmen, and they were you know they they knew what it was, and they were very familiar with a lot of the uh, vocalization sounds you know off the BFRO and other websites, right. Puyallup Screamer things like that, and. They they were like you know this was a bigfoot we heard it it was it was very loud it was so loud that it it almost felt like it was like the sound waves were hitting their body. Yeah, I think Wes can relate to that. <laughs> I, I've heard that. Yeah. I, I remember yeah. hearing your guys' encounter about that. It does. It, it yeah. actually feels like the sound waves hit your body. I mean, it feels like I I described it like being hit with a baseball bat, but we were pretty close to them. So, but no, I can relate to that. Yeah. And and so and after that happened, after they had heard that, um, my mother has a lot of uh, native friends that will come up in that area to pick huckleberries. Most of them are Klickitat Indians. They'll come up there and they'll stop by my mom's place and they'll hang out and talk. And this had happened around the, that time where the Indians were starting to come up to pick huckleberries. And my mom's friend Kutch, who's a Klickitat Indian, had stopped by. And they were just visiting, and my mom told her about these vocalizations they had heard a couple nights before. And Kutch told her that these creatures come down off of a ridge, which is just due, I believe, due east of the Wind River there in Stabler. And she actually took my mom to the location where that ridge comes down the mountain to the west, uh, crosses the Wind River and keeps going west, and she's like, those things come down right off that ridge line, and they come down to the river at night. And, you know, Kutch knew a lot about these creatures, and it was a part of her culture. And so she told my mom about that, and that was just kind of confirmation about that incident. And I grew up with Kutch. You know, she was a Native woman. She was um, she was very uh, dedicated to the traditional ways of her people, it was just the, the the Bigfoot Sasquatch thing was just a part of her culture. It wasn't really a big mystery or, you know, legend to her. And then in 2011, I live uh, in northern Snohomish County. Uh, I just, I work here, so I live here. That that summer in 2011, um, a friend of mine that I, I don't work with him, but we're, uh, we're fellow veterans, and we get together and we go out in the woods 
and we do uh, wilderness treks, and we wear buckskins and moccasins and carry hawk and rifles, and we try to, you know, relive kind of the mountain men thing and uh, sort of try to learn how those people lived and um, how they survived. And so we'll go out in the bush for a couple days at a time just with buckskins and moccasins and, and, and try to live like the mountain men did and try to learn that, that those skills. And we went out. It, it must have been August of 2011. We went up on the Seattle River, which is just – I live right on the Sauk River. This was the next drainage over from where I live now. And – this area where we went to was there had been a lot of sightings in that area. There was actually a Forest Service uh, ranger out of out of the town I live in that had actually seen one of these things right near the area where we went to. Uh, and there was a big thing on Monster Quest about it. We went out there and we weren't looking for Bigfoot. We weren't even thinking about Bigfoot. We just wanted to go out and be out in the wilderness and um, do our mountain man thing. We were walking along the Seattle River and there's a big floodplain along the river where it's just you know, cottonwood and alder and salmonberry and devil's club, and it's really thick and dense. And there are side channels along the the Seattle River that are, you know, where the when it floods, you know, those those channels will be full of water. And they're right. some of them are, you know, 20 feet wide and a vertical distance of, you know, maybe nine feet deep. And they're heavily grown over with vine maple and devil's club and things like that and we were down along that river and we were scouting for for deer before the deer season and we decided to break up and 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 travel perpendicular to the river towards the river along one of these side channels and my my partner must have been maybe three four hundred meters to my right flank and we were walking along this side channel and we heard something that was just um it was a very low yet loud uh, guttural type sound coming from that side channel. We couldn't see in it. It was just so dense. But it was very loud. But but the frequency was very low. Mm-hmm. And and like I said, it, it, it literally felt like it was the, the sound waves coming from this thing was, was like penetrating our bodies. Like you could literally feel it. And, like you know, I work in the woods every day as a forester by myself. I've never heard anything like that before. I've never heard a bear do that or a cougar. I don't know if that was a Sasquatch, but I've never heard or felt anything like that. I've never had an animal make a sound where you could literally feel the vibration coming from the sound that it was making. Yeah, there is nothing um, I know of that does that either. Right, right. And I, you know, I, I try to, I really try to think in an objective way. I have a, I have a scientific degree. You know, I try to think in objective ways. I don't try to be subjective about things. But I'd never heard that. He had never heard that. It was very strange. We were freaked out the entire time we were there, the entire time we spent the night there uh, along the river. Um, but I didn't really have any conclusive evidence, I guess, until about a year later. And it was in the wintertime. It was in February of 2012. And a, a, a fellow forester that I work with and I, we had gotten together. We were doing the mountain man thing with the buckskins and hawking rifles. And we were going up to the base of this mountain uh, where we live, next to where we live, uh, to build a mountain man camp. And we were going to go up there, build a camp, and then come back the following weekend and spend the, spend the weekend up there. And we sort of had this tradition of getting the foresters together and going up there and doing the mountain man thing, shooting hawking rifles and throwing tomahawks and, you know, drinking whiskey, fighting, just, you know, just getting away, I guess. Uh, we went up there. As we were heading up to this place, we chose it because it was a place where nobody goes. 
we work in the area, so we know nobody goes in there. We, we were hiking up to this location, and we saw these tracks in the snow. And I immediately thought, I was immediately upset when I saw the tracks, because I thought, you know, somebody's been in here. Somebody's been in here, and it, and it made me mad, because I, I was trying to find a, a mountain man camp where nobody goes, and somebody had been in here on snowshoes. That's what I thought, because the tracks were huge. And I thought that somebody had been in there with snowshoes. And I didn't think anything of it after that. We hiked up the hill. We got to the base of the mountain. We built our mountain man camp. We were there all day. And then it started getting dark, so we started humping out of there. And as we were hiking out, we we caught the tracks again, and we started looking closer at these tracks. The tracks were not like a – you know, most humans, you know, when they walk – uh, and I don't want to insult your guys' intelligence. I'm, you guys are woodsmen. You know this. But, you know, humans don't normally walk in like a straight line. They're tracks. And these tracks were like in a straight line. And the the stride was like six feet. Five wow. to six feet. And, and that's the thing people don't understand about the Sasquatch. If you, one way to tell fake tracks in a hurry is, you know, humans walk in sort of a herringbone, you know, with a toe-out type of yeah. walk. Sasquatch tracks are almost... Not quite pigeon-toed, but almost, and they're in a very straight line. And and that's what these were. And, I mean, man, I mean, I didn't think anything of it until we came back and I saw that. And the other thing is that, okay, we saw them, and I thought they were, I thought somebody had been up there with snowshoes. But then, you know, I realized, because, you know, you, I've worn snowshoes working in the woods, but I did that on the east side. You can't, you can't work in the woods on the west side of the Cascades in steep, brushy terrain wearing snowshoes. It's just so oh, brushy. You never get anywhere. No. And, and the other thing with that is that when you wear snowshoes, it significantly reduces your stride. Right. So there, there was no way that a person wearing snowshoes could have made those tracks in that dense of brush and walk up, you know, a, probably a 35 to 40 percent grade. That's how steep the slope was and maintain that stride. And after that, we were like, man, you know, this is really weird. And and so the next day, I went back up there by myself with a camera and filmed the tracks and measured the tracks. Um, and I followed them for about a quarter mile. The more I followed them, the more scared and uncomfortable I became because I started to realize from the things I was seeing that these were not human tracks. There was a place where there was a bunch of alder that had, had that had fallen down from the wind, and I had to go around this, you know, this clump of alder that had blown over this this spot where these tracks were, and this thing just stepped right over it. It just stepped right over it, and. And then when it when I followed him up the hill and onto the flat, there was just a bunch of really thick alder, um, and I was having a hard time walking through this alder. And you know I'm only you know five nine. I'm not that big, and this thing was walking through it like it was nothing. And at that point, I I, I got really uncomfortable. I got, I started getting scared because I, I realized that this was not a human. This was whatever made these tracks had to have been at least eight to nine feet tall. Well, I just, I, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I got, I got scared. I really got scared. And, um, and I, di- I didn't have an encounter like you guys did. I just, I just, I got scared. And, you know, for people that say, well, I'm not afraid of anything, you know, they're full of shit. I mean, you know, I, people, I've been in combat. I've scared. killed men in battle. I've seen my friends die in battle. And I, one thing I learned in combat is that fear is good because fear keeps you smart and it keeps you alive. That's the whole and I was we terrified. Have the whole reason we have it. 
Yeah. And you know, right. the, the people, the people who aren't say they're not scared are fools. Yeah. Right. I mean, they really are. And and after that whole thing, um, and this was this was less than a quarter mile from my house. And ever since then, you know, that was in 2012. I get up every morning when it's dark to go out to the woodshed and get firewood. I always have my 10 millimeter with me because I'm scared. Well, it's smart. You know, and I, you know, maybe, I maybe I'm paranoid. Huh? No, I tell people you really got to be careful. I mean, because you know we have way too many cases. You know, I mean, you could be inadvertently doing something that's perceived as aggressive to these things. We don't know. And there's plenty of accounts that prove that. Yeah. So I don't think it ever hurts to be take any kind of precautions. Not that a right. Sasquatch is going to run out and attack somebody, but just to be on the safe side, we don't know that. Yeah. And, and a couple, I easy. actually filed a report with the BFRO, and I, I don't really, I don't know, I don't really care for them, but um, they did send an investigator out, and the guy was a cop. And of course, when he got there, this was like the, this was like a month or two later, and it was our spring had already set in, the snow was gone, uh, and he actually found more tracks. When I took him up to this location, he found more tracks that were fresh in the area. You know, he told me that you know these things are around here. You know, use your you know take your binoculars out, and there was a clear cut nearby that I could use my binoculars to glass the clear cut. And he's like, you know, look at that, and look at the base of the mountain where those tracks were heading. And so I sort of made a habit of doing that. And about a year ago, I was I was looking up at the base of this mountain, which, you know, it has glaciers on it year-round. Um, right. I can see it close to my house. And I'd walk my dog, and that was sort of my routine. I'd walk my dog, and when I got to a clear vantage point, I'd take my binoculars out and look at this uh, mountain where those tracks I had found were heading. And I found, what I, I, through my binoculars, I saw what appeared to be like a cave or a crevasse or something and it was just right below the timber line where the glaciers sort of meet the timber and the real steep, uh, rugged part of that mountain. And I saw what looked to be a cave, and it really didn't catch my attention, but I looked at it, and I, I saw what appeared to be, you know, these these black figures moving around this cave. And I saw about, I don't know, maybe two of these things near the entrance of this cave and they moved away from it and then they and then they went into the timber and that was all I had seen. And I don't know if those were squatches, but I saw them through my binoculars and they were in the area in the exact same area where those tracks were heading. I, I don't dismiss it as, as being squatches. I think that's probably what it was, because it was in the winter time when I saw it and, you know, bears hibernate in the winter and they don't live where you know the glaciers meet the timber line, as far as I know. Right, right. What do you? Uh, I mean, how do you feel about the whole thing now, Doug? Since you've you've kind of seen and experienced what you've experienced, what, how do you feel about the whole thing now? Well, honestly, guys, it, it 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 freaks me out, and I think there's reason to be freaked out about it. You know, I'm not gonna try and brag and say I'm not afraid of anything because I am, and it freaks me out. And I work in the woods by myself every day. I sort of got out. I, I tried to kind of forget about the whole thing for a while, and I was disgusted with a lot of the things I had seen on YouTube and on TV, you know, Finding Bigfoot. I mean, that show is ridiculously stupid, in my opinion. And I just got I just got burnt out with the known Bigfoot community, and I, I, I just kind of tried to forget about it. But I, I always knew that they were there based on those tracks I had seen, and I was always scared of the whole thing. And then... I'd say Martin Luther King Day of this year, I found your guys' show, and I started listening to it, and I heard, you know, the encounter that you, Wes, and Woody had, 
and it, and it just it was just um absolutely fascinating to me and it really confirmed a lot of things that I had either seen or heard or had talked to people about and of course the just the, the knowledge that Will has on the topic it just blew me away and I I had listened to some other blog talk shows you know between then and now and but I you know this this Sasquatch Chronicles I got to say is uh the tip of the spear on this topic it it really is fantastic and Honestly, it's funny. I'll listen to it in the morning before I go to work in the woods and I get freaked out and I kind of got to, you know, just kind of put it in the back of my mind when I'm out alone in the woods because I, I do get freaked out. You know, that yeah. fear, I think, and like you said, that is a good thing and it really is. I, I suspect that goes way back to our ancestors that we no longer have even any sort of, you know, that didn't have any written records that had plenty of encounters with these things. And yeah. You know, I think that spirit, that fear, and, and, and the same reason why we like horror movies, it sort of goes back to that primal, or those primal encounters, and it really is ingrained in our species. I mean, I think we're kind of hardwired at this point, you know, to be aware of these things, even though we're not having those same experiences, at least on a big scale anymore. And I, 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 I have a question. I have a question. Yeah, go ahead. Um, Right before I started listening to this show, I, like, literally within maybe a half hour before I found, and, and of course, I found Bigfoot Hotspot Radio before I think you guys had switched it, but um, I had heard the interview with Muskie Allen in regard to the supposed Sasquatch that Rick Dyer shot, and I was, I, I listened to that entire uh, interview, I, I think it was from uh, Facebook Find Bigfoot. Have you guys heard that? No. Yeah, I've okay. heard it before. Okay, okay. Yeah, I, I heard that, and I, I bought it hook, line, and sinker. I was like, man, this is amazing. You know, they they shot one, they killed one. Uh, the guys went there and looked at it and saw the actual body, and, you know, I was all excited. And then, you know, then I find your guys' show, and I start listening to it. And, of course, I, I was really impressed with it, and then I had heard that this was just a hoax. I mean, what do you guys know about that whole situation with Rick Dyer and that Bigfoot that he apparently shot? Well, you know, from I think Wes would agree with me from actually having seen a real Sasquatch up close, it doesn't take very more than a split second to look at that picture and know that it's a fraud. Yeah, it is. You know, and not only that, but when he parades this thing around, if you if you look at it, there's some uh, you know discussions on on YouTube videos about that. It's not even the whole body. It's supposed to be supposedly just the skin. When you when you interview people, I've interviewed. I couldn't even tell you how many witnesses over the years, thousands probably. You Something I learned from Rene DeHinn, and this is something that kind of reminded me when you mentioned Muskie Allen. He uh, claims that he was a good pal of Rene's. I knew Rene DeHinn very well for 25 years. I never heard him mention that man's name once that I can think of. So, you know, he kind of fits in with the whole dire fraud business. Back to the the fake itself. Well, first of all, you look at, at Dyer. You know, he was behind the 2008 gorilla suit in a freezer in Georgia. He involved right. a lot of people involved in that. <laughs> um, right. You know, he bragged today about, you know, buying a 2014 Porsche and, and a $100,000 motorhome. You know, his whole thing is to make a buck. And unfortunately, the people who don't take the time to research this subject and find out who's a fraud and who isn't. You just just look at the, the what he's got there. I mean, you know, I always get, let me get back to what I was saying. We backtrack a little bit. Uh, when you interview people... Like Wes and Woody's account, when I interviewed them, it was a solid account. There were no little threads to pull out. You know how you, you get a piece of cloth and you start pulling threads, more come loose? On a fake story, you can start pulling threads, and pretty soon the whole thing falls apart. With Dyer's, 
I wouldn't even know where to begin. You start pulling threads on that, the whole thing unravels quite easily. So fakes are pretty easy to tell. All people have to do is make the effort to do a little research and, and find out real quickly that's nonsense, that whole thing. Yeah, if you look at the body he has now, even put the 2008 aside, say that never happened, that body's not even close to anything I saw. I mean, it no, doesn't even match up to anything I've seen. You know, I said before, you know, you know, guys familiar with the show Face Off where they have um, uh, people who create suits and special effects things for movies? Yeah. And it's sort of a competition. It's a, you know, reality show. I, I always say that Dyer should watch that show, at least when it comes to terms to hair placement, because right. it looks like one of the, remember the, the, the troll dolls in the 60s and 70s? It and does, yeah. He's modeled it after, and you can clearly see the face is a person's face. It's not even not even a good job of hoaxing. The proportions are way off. They're way too small for one thing. Yeah, they are. You know, there's a picture of him laying with his head next to its its head, you know, <laughs> the and it's it's human proportions. It's not even Sasquatch, let, let alone the size. You know, the size ratio is completely. I, I we're not even going to address that because it's ridiculous. So I was just wondering, um, you know, based off of those tracks that I found right next to my house, I guess my question is. You know, those tracks were real. I know they're real. I know that they couldn't have been a human. What would be your guys' opinion or maybe the knowledge that you have on these things as to the activity of what's going on, you know, around this area? Like, what they were coming down from a very steep, rocky, uh, snow-covered, timbered mountain down towards the river, and then they took off back up towards the river. I mean, it, it seems to me like they were coming down, maybe maybe getting fish or something. But yeah, they're coming. They're um, coming down to feed. Yeah. Okay. Typically, yeah. typically they, you know, when they're sleeping, they're up in the high country. Uh huh. Like what? And again, what you mentioned, your Indian friend, and I've heard it from my Indian friends, and even before I heard it from my Indian friends, I figured out what they were doing many years ago. They will come. They'll stay in the high areas during the day. As soon as it starts getting dark. Like with Yakult Mountain, for instance, uh, back in 89 when the same group that Wes and Woody encountered, uh, we were investigating that group when, of course, the Sasquatches are, in that group were younger then. There were two fairly young that are adult now. Uh, they were coming down off that area plus or minus an hour of dusk, uh, screaming and raising all kinds of hell. They were coming down in the valleys to feed. And then right before daylight, they'd head back up there. And that's pretty generally what they do in most places. I don't, I mean, I don't even want to see one, <laughs> to be honest with you. I mean, I do, but I, I'm curious, but I know they're there, and I, I, I'm not sure I want to see one. I can't even imagine, after hearing about Wes and Woody's encounter, after hearing that, I've never heard anything like that. I mean, I had, I had heard about, you know, the cow man and, you know, the, yeah. the story that Teddy Roosevelt talked about and all that, but it's like, you know, you two guys, it seems like you're just regular dudes that just were out in the bush, and you see these things, and, what they displayed to you, you said it sounded like you you felt like you were on the menu. I just can't imagine. I, I'd probably have a heart attack or at least fill my drawers if I had that kind of encounter. And I think yeah, that's a reasonable reaction. It felt like yeah, it. It's an underwear-changing like moment. <laughs> I think when you're put in those moments to where, you know, you have to do what you do to survive. I mean, me, Woody and I have talked about it several times. You, you know, you just feel like, if you're not smart, you're going to die. If you don't have fear, you're going to die. If you do something stupid, you're going to die. And I think when you're put in that moment, you know, a lot of people say, well, I don't know what I would have done. I think a lot of people probably would have done what we done. We just kind of sat there in fear, man. We just didn't didn't know what to do. 
I, I didn't want to do anything to provoke a fight because I thought if we did, that was it. We were dead. And, see, and that, you kind know, of, that kind of supports what I was saying. You know, if you don't provoke them, you don't do anything, it sort of diffuses whatever tension may have right, been there. Right. It felt like a game of chess is what it felt like. It felt like yeah. who's going to make the first move, who's going to screw up first and piss the other guy off, who's going to it, – it's like both sides are waiting to react. That's what it felt like. Well, when you watch these shows like a National Geographic where they're going out to observe groups of gorillas, you know, they make it look like they just walk up there and they're, and they're you know, they sneak up to them. But in reality, it takes weeks to acclimate that group to those people, and it takes them a long time to get a little closer each day when they go out there. It's not they just, you know, it's like these people say with, with Bigfoot, or are just going to be the, the friendly forest giants. That's nonsense. There are way too many stories that were there were these chance encounters, or like, you know, you mentioned the Teddy Roosevelt story where the two trappers were up there and one guy was killed. Well, you know, they blundered into where a place they shouldn't have been in where apparently this thing you know, it was in their backyard. It was in. The, they were in its backyard. That's what happened. You know, one guy was killed. The other one was lucky enough to get away with just his rifle. And I have a new post on the on the blog where there was a story from a couple of doctors had two their boys out. You know, they encountered this thing. I mean, it come down the trail. They didn't even notice him until it got right up to him and uh, scared these guys terribly bad. And there were lots of stories from those types of encounters. So. Yeah, it's something to definitely be thoughtful about and careful of. You know, it's like any wildlife out there. You know, you're not going to go out and just go grab a bear by his back end and, and say, okay, I got this guy, you know, without uh, risking some injury there. Finding tracks like you have, Doug, and listening to different Bigfoot shows, I can tell you right now, you, you're 100% more pre- prepared than we were at the time. Oh, yeah, Because we, we had no idea what we were looking at. We called them monsters for almost a week before it kind of set into what we actually saw. Well, and it sounds like you guys were you guys were packing some pretty serious firepower with you, and it's it didn't seem like you you felt like that would really do anything. Yeah, when you see how big they are, and it's hard to describe the size of them until you actually see one. I mean, people can tell you all day long how big they are and how wide the shoulders are and how none of that really means anything until you see it for your own eyes. And when you yeah, see it, it for your own eye, yeah, it doesn't sink in. And you could be armed to the teeth, and those guns really don't feel like it's going to be enough. Especially when you see a, a large alpha male, you look, you can have the largest caliber rifle, and it still doesn't seem like it's going to be enough. You know, that first one I saw was a big one. It was eight feet, and like I said, at least 800 pounds. It was kind of dwarfed by the second encounter I had on the Washougal River south of you guys, Wes. That thing... You know, it was it was nine, ten feet high, probably closer to fifteen hundred pounds. It was huge, and I remember thinking back on the first one I encountered. Of course, I just had a twenty-two, but I thought, geez, my my hunting rifle or my twelve gauge, you know, it would be iffy if those things would have had an impact on something with that mass. Yeah, and the second and one, you- certainly not. I, I don't even know what I'd use. Maybe a fifty caliber rifle or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I know, me and Woody always joke about it. We were, we would have fired off everything but one shot and saved that last shot for ourselves if yeah, it wasn't exactly. enough, you know? No, I And mean, I think, I think I've heard Wes say, you know, if you ran into one and you actually engaged the thing, you better have a backup plan of a backup plan of a backup plan because there's four to six more that are going to be right on your ass. Yeah, that's right. 
And that's the main reason why we didn't shoot that night. Because Woody, when we're sitting in the car, I, I don't think we've you know ever really gone into full detail about our conversations and what how we felt that night. But uh, I remember several times that night, Woody was saying, "Well, let's shoot our way out. I'll start shooting, you or you start shooting, and I'll start driving, and we'll get our way out." You know, I just felt like it would have been a death sentence for us. I felt like. Yeah, we might be able to get one or two, but what about the rest of them? They're going to come after. I mean, these things are regressive the way it came. Yeah, I felt like they were going to tear us apart. You know, almost before you pull the trigger, I think when you see one, there's probably two or three pretty close by. They're usually not too horribly far apart. That's like the right. ones that I encountered. You know, I won't come walking in on the big one. I didn't realize there was a second one behind me. Right. And you hear that all the time. You hear that from people all the time that, the one they actually see, there's usually two or three more that are really close by that they don't see. You know, it's I think a lot you brought up common. Yeah, in the old days, you know, when Green and Hinden were, you know, the big guys and all this, the original thinking was that they were solitary. You know, overall, my work since then, I found that's not the case. When you start looking at these stories and listening to people, there's always one or two more. Hey, hey, Wes, have you and Woody have you guys been out in the woods much since you had your encounter? Uh, about the last uh, six months to eight months, I'd say, yeah, we have been. It took me about six months before I could get back out there. Uh, I didn't want to go back out in in the woods. I mean, I, I, you know, I didn't know exactly really what we were dealing with. And so, you know, even armed to the teeth, I wasn't really comfortable in it. But, yeah, we've gone out. Since then, we've gone back out, yeah. Okay, yeah. Like when I'm out in the woods, okay, with my job, I can't. I can't carry a firearm, um, you know, I carry a knife, and sometimes I'll carry, like, a Viking spear or an axe or something, but I feel very vulnerable. But when I'm outside of work and I'm out in the bush around my house where I found those tracks, whether I'm hunting or scouting, I'm usually carrying, at, at, at the minimum, a 10-millimeter and uh, my M4 battle rifle with probably four 30-round mags. I mean, you guys don't think that that would be enough to take one of these things down if you had an encounter with one? Well, it depends on where you hit them. I think it's all shot placement. Yeah. I think with mine and Woody's encounter, and I could be wrong on this, but I think on our encounter, we had, they were coming down from the mountain, headed, and they were heading down to the river, and I'm speculating on all of this. I think they were heading down to the river, and we caught them, and we and we cut them off on their way down to the river is, is what I think happened. I think you guys they were... You deer involved there, too. Yeah, there was deer involved there, too. They might have been hunting... But I think that we, by accident, came upon them more than they came upon us. I think we stumbled upon them uh, instead of them coming on us. I think once we were there, once we stumbled upon them, then it was game time in their eyes. Even though it was by accident, it, we, you know, there was no ill intent on our part. I think we just stumbled, we were in the wrong, wrong place at the wrong time. And that could have been like what I mentioned the Hugh Brown story. You know, it may have been perceived as a competition-like thing with that group of deer that you guys came across that was right close by there. You know, maybe they were hunting that group. You guys sort of stumbled into that and ticked them off. Yeah, and and that might have been. That might have We saw several deer that were acting weird that night prior to seeing anything. And I think that maybe we, you know, we might have messed up some hunting. We might have cut them off to the river. I mean, who knows? I think if you're smart and you have common sense, and you keep your eyes and your ears open, you almost, if you don't have a firearm, I think you can come out in a safe manner. 
And that's just my opinion on it. I think if you no, I, I think you're right about that. I mean, they're they're not just out attacking people at random. Uh, right. Occasionally, these things happen. And again, you know, if you you get, wind up in a situation like that, like Wes said, you know, you you sort of react to it with fear. But and I think that's our protective mode is you're not just acting aggressively against them because you're going to lose. And then sort of you know, as you can, get away from the situation. And they're not going to generally they're not going to bother you. Do you see that new show, Cryptid Wool? Have you seen the opening to that show? I did, yes. Have you seen it yet, Doug? Yeah, I just started watching it. So you guys know the opening scene where uh, it looks like a guy's filming out in the woods, and then all of a sudden he gets thrown in the air, like you see the camera kind of go flying up. So I thought that was all just BS drama that the History Channel put together. That was actually a hiker that was out in the Louisiana swamps by himself. He was out filming uh, as he was hiking, apparently something grabbed him from behind and threw him in the air, and his body's never been found. He's actually a missing hiker. That was the last known footage that he's ever taken. That sort of reminds me of Kunbo's stories, you know, from that part yeah. of the country. Yeah, it does. That's, That's a creepy, little different huh? variety, and they're a little more violent. Yeah. It kind of sounds like those southern squatches are – it just kind of seems like they're a lot more aggressive than the ones up here. I mean, well, maybe I'm wrong, but – we more than likely have two species, two different species, and and the one definitely is a little more aggressive than what I call the tip, the the traditional Sasquatch that we have in the Northwest here, the Patterson type Sasquatch. Um, not quite as violent as the ones in the South. Now, did you listen, uh, Doug, to uh, the show we had with Kunbo? Yeah. When he talked yeah. about that, um, you know, the and if you've seen the Vandermini drawings that, you know, what they had to the reconstruction of Neanderthal skulls and what they look like, you know, from a different perspective, a non-anthropomorphic artist rendition from that, you know, when they did the reconstruction, it looks much more ape-like. And he said that it, with the exception of them, you know, not having the cat-like pupils and the ape-like nose, that was identical to what he has seen. I, I can see where that could be a little more violent creature. Uh, it kind of scares me just, you know, looking at those pictures, thinking that something like that's out there. But it's definitely different than what we have here. Yeah. When you were at Fort Lewis, did you ever have any encounters? We actually did. We were out on a training exercise for a week. It would have been in the spring of 1980, out by the Nisqually River, and coincidentally not all that far from where we had that encounter in 1976. I got a radio call. I was with the 5th Air Cab at the time, and I had a 15-man squad, and they said, just uh, there's going to be no aggressors, practice ambush techniques. So I told my two team leaders to go ahead and set the men out in a classic L-shaped ambush, and I said, we'll practice that a couple times, and we'll call it a night. Well, the fire team leaders took their men, and they, they were out setting them up alongside this road, and I took my radio man, which when night vision goggles were first came out, the, the ANPVS-5s, and they weren't the first models weren't that good. They were better than the old Starlight scopes, but not a whole lot better. So I had these on, and I, I took him into the tree lines in between the fire team so I could control them. Instantly, I saw this huge shape go from my right to left, like it something took one big step, and the hair on the back of my neck instantly went up. Now, I couldn't tell for sure that it was a Sasquatch, but from having encountered two of them not that many miles from that spot, you know, that instantly went through my mind. So I started backing up. I told the RTO, back it up, back it up, get out of the tree line now. And uh, I called the fire team leaders in. I said, okay, we're going to bag the exercise. Let's just get in a 360 here in the middle of this 
a big wide area. And I said, we'll just kind of hunker down for the night and, and get some sleep until the helicopters come pick us up in the morning. So we were sitting there, and about an hour, maybe an hour went by, if that long. And a couple of the guys said, hey, Sarge, there's somebody walking around us. And I said, no, nah. they said, there's nobody out in this area. There's nobody coming to aggress us. And they said, no, listen, there's, you can hear two feet walking. And then pretty soon all the guys said, yeah, you can hear something. And then one of them says, Sarge, you're from this area. Maybe it's Bigfoot. I said, what do you know about that? So I kind of thought, oh, crap. Okay, I guess I better tell them. So I told them what my experience was. And to this day, I'd swear every one of those men would say that there was a Sasquatch that was circling us that night. <laughs> wow. We figured, you know, we didn't have, all we had was blanks. We had a lot of blanks. Yeah, I had a couple of M60 machine guns, and everybody had their M16s. And, and, I, and they, I, they said, well, what happens if it comes in too close? And I said, well, we can't hurt anything, but we can make a hell of a bunch of noise. <laughs> yeah. Not well, a good if I see one or find tracks or anything else, you guys will be the first ones I let know. Well, we oh, we appreciate that. it. Yeah, and yeah, thanks for coming on, by the way. Yeah, it was great. I, I love this show. It's great. It's great to talk to you guys. Yeah, thanks, Doug. We really do appreciate it. And thanks for, uh, Mike Wilson, thanks for coming on. Everyone here at Bigfoot Hotspot Radio would like to thank Audible.com. Audible.com is the internet-leading provider of audiobooks with over 150,000 different titles to choose from. To download a free audiobook of your choice, Go to audibletrial.com forward slash Bigfoot Hotspot. Hey, Lisa, it's Wes and Will. How are you? Oh, hi. How you doing? I'm all right. Doing good. Doing good. But oh God, um, is, that, is that Will? This is yeah. Will. Oh, my God. Hi. Hi there. Start, start hey, <laughs> hey, what the heck? I didn't get it. Oh, my God. Well, I'm, I'm, just, you, I'm just joking. You, know, you did, are you? Okay. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Will, do you want to do the normal? You want to interview her, and I'll ask questions as we go. Yeah. And sure. we got someone else we're going to bring on at in about half hour or so. So, do you, is that enough time for you, Lisa? Do you think a half hour? Oh yeah, it's you know, like I said, my story is I don't know what it was, and so I wanted some help to figure it out because since I since um my dad started talking about the Bigfoot experience at Christmas again, this experience popped back into my head because it happened when I was like fifteen. So okay. and I was listening I've been listening to you guys and I'm thinking, what was that? So I kinda just want closure, I guess. What what time frame was it uh when this incident occurred? Um it was about midnight or one in the morning. Um, okay, I was kind of, I'm sorry about that. I kind of meant the date, the time time period. Oh, well, I was 15, so it's about 1985. About 85, okay. Yeah. So, now leading up to the event, what were you doing? We, our family, you know, like I said, we had a boat out at Pondery Lake. I don't know if you know where that is. It's in Idaho. Lots and lots of pristine forest and all the, you know, all the animals that come with it. Um, but we were, we were docked. In, it's called Buttonhook Bay. We were docked out there, and I was—I had my friend, and we just were—we put up a tent on the land where my parents would sleep in the boat, and my friend and I would sleep on the land, and we were just out camping and having fun and swimming and stuff. And um, that's when we decided we met some kid that night, and we decided to—we were going to sneak out later that night. 
So that's when this all happens, when we snuck out. Okay. So walk us through the event. How how do the events take place? Okay. Well, like I said, we plan on sneaking out around midnight or so that night, and so we snuck out, and this the walk, is, we were going to walk to the swimming hole in the middle of the night, and the swimming hole is a, it's like a path under, it's kind of in, on the edge by the water, but it's um, under the, you know, it's, it's pretty heavy forested, and it's very dark, so we made it to the swimming hole, it's like a 1.5 mile trek, so we made it to the swimming hole, and the swimming hole is pretty well lit, with like, you know, street lamp looking things, but it's, you know, it's up by the parking lot is where it's um, more lit, but down by we were wasn't so lit. So I ran down to the lifeguard chair, and I was going to either tip it over or sit in it or something. You know, I don't know. I was a kid. So I, I went up to it, and on the lifeguard chair, there was a dead little kitten body <laughs> with its head taken off. Oh. And out, you know, guts coming out of it, and so, you know, it it was a little black and white kitten, it was a little kitten, and so I'm like talking to my, I, I was going to call my friends over, and I said, you know, hey, come check this out, and I thought it was like, like, yeah, little worshiper kids, you know, like I listened to Iron Maiden, and I would write 666 on the wall, and think it was cool, so I wasn't really scared, I just thought, oh, some kids are doing this, but I, I didn't like the kitten part, I wasn't happy with that, anyway. So I said, hey, come here to the friends. And this, the kid, he goes, we got to get out of here now. And I looked over at him, and he was standing, like, by the tree, or not by the tree, but away. Like, my my sight went to him, but the tree, I can't explain it. So I looked at, I looked at him, I looked up at this tree, and it's one of those pine trees that the limbs start, like, probably 12 feet up off the air, and in this tree was a figure and it was crouched between the limbs and like the feet were on the bottom limb and it was like holding on to the top limb with its hands but it was so backlit that I just saw this figure and I'm like oh my god and all I remember is and we had to go under this thing this man I don't know a guy we had to go under him to get back to the path so well, I kind of tried to go around, and we all just bolted back to the path. And and then my flashlight was uh, shaky, you know, it, when the batteries are going down, so you have to shake all the time. Mm-hmm. So all my the, the my girlfriend was hanging on to me, and the kid was behind us. And we were just, we weren't running because I think we were too afraid to run, but we were just like walking fast, kind of running a little bit. And the kid kept saying, do not look behind you. Do not look behind you. And I heard... I thought I heard something coming after us, but I don't know. You know, I can't say if it was us, our steps, or what. So I can't say that I really heard something behind us, but he kept saying, do not look behind you. So I didn't. And then we ran, then we we made it back to the shore, or to the, not the shore, it's the tent. Um, I'm just kind of freaking out here not talking about it, because I, like I said, I just remembered this a week ago. Um, the kid, when we got back, the kid said that he saw, he didn't see it come out of the tree, but he said he looked and it was landing on the ground. And he what he what he compared it to was, you know, when gymnasts do their flipping and then they land? Right. That they, 
that it landed not like a gymnast would, how it how they kind of bend their knees and come back up, you know, like they it looked like they landed. He said it looked like it landed with no effort, like like it stepped off a phone book. That's what he said. He saw it coming down, and then it just kind of went boop on the ground. But it was like 12 feet in the air, you know. That's what this kid said. I didn't see it. I'm sorry, I was going to ask you. When you saw it in the tree, it definitely had the shape of a man and not, not a bear. Oh, yeah. It, it was holding on to the top limb, and it had elbows. You know what I mean? Okay. Like, you know how you, you would crouch and hold on to the top limb and your elbows turn like a person? I right. thought it was a guy. I thought it was a big guy. I don't remember how big it was because, like I said, I just, I looked up and I, I like, my heart, like, went into my mouth, you know. I just was like, oh, my God. And, like, you know, all I thought is we have to bolt. The kid went back to his boat, and we couldn't go back to my boat because, you know, I was a pretty good kid, and I didn't do that bad things really. So sneaking out was a bad thing. So I couldn't let my parents know. So we went back into the tent, and... Eventually, and then we just, I just sat there like all night, like looking at the darkness, like in the tent. My friend went to sleep, and later, um, I heard this twice. I heard it sounded like a huge boulder being thrown into the water. It was in deep water because I know what a boulder sounds like going into shallow water. It hits the rocks below. Right. You know, I was a kid, and I threw rocks in the water all the time. We heard, I heard that twice. Just huge boulders being thrown into deep water, and there was no docks or anything way out in the lake to it. You know, you could to do it from shore. A human could not have thrown a rock that big from shore. And this happened twice. And you know, I and that's pretty much all that happened then. And I was talking to my sister about it, and she says, "Don't you remember that that happened to us about the rock in the water?" She said that happened to us when we were in the tent a couple or one time before, and. Our dog was freaking out, and our dog wasn't with me this time, but then our dog was growling and stuff, and I said, let's get, I said, let's go back to the boat now, and we ran back to the boat. That was another time with the rocks. So we heard the rocks, you know, I heard the rocks twice that night, and then another time I heard the rocks. But that's all that happened. You know, then and I guess I went to sleep, and the next morning, you know, I don't know, and then it kind of faded off into memory, so. So you didn't tell anybody else about it then? Um, I told... I told people, like my sister remembers telling me, she remembers me telling her about it, but I never told my parents because I told my mom just the other day, and she's like, well, now you tell me you snuck out, you know? So, no, I never told anybody, really. I just, I think it was so traumatic because, I mean, I've never been scared, so scared in my life. But I didn't smell anything. Like people say they smell. I didn't smell anything. Well, you, you know, know on, on the smell thing, over many, many years, and something Renee DeHinn and I used to talk about, but somewhere between 10 and 20, out of 10 or 20 people you interview that have seen a Sasquatch, you know, you only get one or two that might say they've seen something. Yeah. I remember him saying at the time, if for him it was about one out of 10. So it's not something that's as common as people think, and it might be more of a, um, when they get excited, like gorillas and, and other higher primates have scent glands in their hands, and and, of course, their armpits and things, and they excrete odors when they get excited. So oftentimes they don't get excited, so you don't get an odor. I was stood 15 feet in front of two of them when I was 16. I never smelled anything. So it's not as it's not a, a component that's supposed to be with every single sighting. 
just talking to, when I told my ex-boyfriend about it, he said that it was probably uh, just some guy that was hunting, you know, and waiting for whatever animal to come up to the lifeguard chair. And I was thinking, why would a Bigfoot go leave a dead kitten with a, a headless kitten on a lifeguard chair? Wouldn't he eat it, you know? Yeah, probably that. That's probably something yeah. else. But uh... it's really hard to say what what it was. I don't think it's a bear. That's not really bear type behavior that I've come across. But all we have out here in Washington is like black bear. And every time we've come across black bear, they'll bolt. The minute they see yeah. you or smell you, they, they are run. gone. They're not going to hang out yeah. in the tree until you pass by. A, a hunter. Not and this at was midnight. at night. Yeah, not at midnight. And and <laughs> yeah, a hunter would have said. Be in the tree at midnight. Yeah. Especially most hunters will say they'll make themselves known to other people. Even if it is a bunch of kids, they'll say, hey. Right. You know, because you never know if someone else is armed. You never know if uh, – so you always try and make yourself known to other people that are that are in the area. But, I, you know, a hunter hanging onto a tree like that, I, I don't see it. So, I mean, boy, that's an yeah. odd, odd – I mean, it, sort of, it sort of limits the options. It does. It, it does limit to what – I mean, it could have been. It really could have been a Sasquatch. For it to sit in the tree like that and wait, kind of wait for you guys, I mean. And, and you guys, you and Woody saw one in the tree, so. It's and not, it was the same type of thing. It was wrapped around just like she described, and it would kind of go from the left to the right to le- of the tree right. trunk, checking us out. Oh, but yeah. it was like a person, but like a monkey is how I yeah. described it. It was moving back and forth, not with its upper body, but with kind of its lay, its legs. Like, you know how you sit in a swivel chair and you kind of move your legs back and forth? It was kind of like that in a way. Like yeah, like shifting? Leg. Yeah, shifting. There you go. It was shifting the legs. Yeah, that's um, what I saw. So really? Okay. Well, yeah, that's exactly I, just what I, saw. I just don't think, see why it would be a pig foot. I mean, I, you know, and like, but then uh, why would a hunter, do, I don't know what it was. It was not a bear. I, You know, and there are bear up there. I heard one once in the garbage can in the tent two feet from me or three feet, whatever. But this thing, I mean, and, and I was, I've been thinking about it and like, it was so backlit. So it was just all black. It was all this, just this silhouette. Right. And I'm trying to think if I, if I saw like a fuzziness to it and I can't remember, you know, it was blurry, but it wasn't, but it wasn't not blurry, but you know, it was like when something is so backlit, Right, but silhouette, and it's like I'm just trying to think. Was there fur? I yeah, don't know. I don't see a lot of. I I don't, can't say that I saw. Mine was the same thing. It was backlit, <gasps> so it just was this black figure. It was a black figure. It wasn't backlit, and um, I can't say that we saw you know any fur or hair or anything like that 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 I can think of on that one anyway. Trying to rationalize this, and you know my stomach is not, and just like what I want to know what that was, and it doesn't matter now that it's done, but. What was um, it, and why was that sitting there? Like, what, did, you know, did somebody hate the lifeguard? Like, I don't know, but, man, we got out of there, and I, to this day, will never know what it was. So. Yeah, I know Kumbo told uh, Will and I off the air that, you know, they'll, or actually I talked to Kumbo prior to us going on the air, and, and he talked about Sasquatches popping the heads off of kittens and, and puppies and stuff oh. like that. So I don't know really? if it's... You know, I don't know why they would do that, but he says that it's he's seen it. It's pretty common there. There, mm-hmm. not like big dogs, but like puppies and kittens and that sort of thing. Wow. Okay. Well, 
yeah, that's my story. So I, like I said, it's a, it's a, who knows what that was, but, you know, I wish I could get more insight to it. But Yeah. Have you been back to the area since in the last couple of years? Have you gone back? Oh, no, I mean, we went, I grew up there, so it's pretty much, you know, I, I went back ever since after that happened until I was, you know, 18 years old or so or 19, but no, it's been, you know, I'm 43 now, so it has been so long since I've been back there, and, uh, you know, no, my dad sold the boat, and that was it, so. I hear you. Yeah. Well, we sure, we sure appreciate you sharing the encounter. Yeah, we sure do. And, you know, I want to say that you guys, you're not jokers, you're professional, you, you know, uh, you don't think, you know, I was telepathed that some Bigfoot stole my antifreeze to poison somebody. I mean, come on, you know. So, yeah, you know, I I don't know why people come up with that stuff, but it's, <laughs> you know, you have to ask yourself, okay, what other animal in the world does things like that? And the answer yeah. is none. So, yeah. I, you know, I, I guess they because it doesn't fit in their frame of reference, it's so, you know, out there to them that maybe they have to have an answer that's equally out there, you know, to explain <laughs> it instead of just you know, okay, this is an animal we don't know about, and, and there's just a nuts and bolts explanations for it. Yeah. Okay, well. Well, thank I you, Lisa. Thank you and, okay, well, right. take care. Thanks, Lisa. Love you Thanks for listening. Thank you. Lisa. Bye. That was a cool encounter, man. I kind of think she yeah, saw was, Bigfoot, but you, yeah, you got to be extra think so. You got to be careful, I guess, on what you, what you, uh, you know, everything can't be Bigfoot, but it's kind of hard right. to narrow down. Well, again, you know, like you said, when you boil it down, it's like, okay, you've only got a couple of choices. It's built like a man. And I asked right. her if it looked like you know, the outline was a man or was a bear. She said, no, it was a man because it had elbows and the upper part was grasping the limbs. So then you've only got one of two choices. Either it's a man in a tree at midnight out by some lake, which is pretty unlikely, or it's right. a Sasquatch. Right. I mean, I don't know what else it could be. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's kind of disturbing when she was describing it because, I mean, that's kind of how ours was backlit too by the moon, and Very similar to same shifting the exact same way she's describing. So yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, it's 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 uh that was a good account. That was a good encounter. And it's like I've said before, when you listen to an account like that, usually another one. Of course, yours is the one, and I can think of I think one other one where there was an exact same kind of situation. You can always you can always think of another one in your mind when you're listening to an account. And that's the way you can tell it's true is because you've right away another one will pop in your mind. Yeah. Everyone here at Bigfoot Hotspot Radio would like to thank Audible.com. Audible.com is the internet leading provider of audiobooks with over 150,000 different titles to choose from. To download a free audiobook of your choice, go to audibletrial.com forward slash Bigfoot Hotspot. Hey, Lon, it's Wes and Will. How are you? Hey, how you doing? Hi, Lon. I'm doing pretty good. Yeah, we really appreciate you coming on the show. No problem. Now, prior to this incident where you saw a Sasquatch, you were fishing that day. That's right? Mm-hmm. Prior to that time, what sort of knowledge did you have about the subject of Bigfoot? Well, I, I had actually been a paranormal investigator since the mid-70s, but 
uh, cryptids and Bigfoot just weren't part of what I was doing. And, you know, I had known of Bigfoot basically because of the, uh, the uh, Boggy Creek movie, but other than that, I really didn't pay too much attention to it. Okay. I guess start us in from that day you were you were going fishing and then take us take us into the account. You know, I, this is an area I had gone fishing several times. Uh, it was on the, uh, it was actually, it was May the 9th of 1981. It was uh, 10 o'clock in the morning. I was fly fishing for smallmouth bass on the south branch of the Dashko River. Now, this area I was at was approximately one mile downstream from Route 32 near Sykesville, uh, Sykesville, Maryland. The weather was sunny, nice spring day. I was on the south bank up near the, well, not far from the road, because the road runs right beside the river. And uh, I was there fishing for a while. I was in, I was standing in in the river. I had noticed a, I started to notice a stray dog. It was a large mixed breed dog that was sniffing around the weeds and the thickets on the north bank. I think the dog was probably about 50 yards from me. He was weaving in and out of the brush, and uh, so I wasn't worried about the dog bothering me. So I just went back to doing what I was doing, concentrating on fishing. But uh, after a few minutes or so, I heard the dog barking and growling. I, I looked up. I thought it may have stirred up a deer or something. I noticed dark, hairy creature bobbing up and down in the thicket. Soon later, I heard a loud yelp come from the dog. And the creature stood straight up. Now, I don't know what he did to the dog. I don't know if he kicked at it or grabbed it or what it did. The best I could tell, this creature was about seven to eight foot tall. It had mm-hmm. dark matted hair all around the body, only on the head. But the face was fairly sparse. And I could actually only see the body from about, about mid-chest up because of the thicket. The weeds and thickets kind of obscured the body at that time. So I stood completely still, and I started hearing it making ticking sounds. At the time, I didn't know what those sounds were, but since then, I, I, I believe they were teeth. I think he was gnashing his teeth or clicking his teeth together. But I could hear it. You know, I was a fair distance away, maybe about, I tied down maybe, uh, maybe 30 yards, but I could hear, I could hear the clicking. I just watched him for a second, a couple seconds, and he moved out of the thicket. When he moved out, I could tell it was a male. He turned around and started walking toward the woods behind him. I also got pretty good sniff of uh, a strong mus- musky odor, which actually reminded me of fox urine from what I used to use when I used to do deer hunting. Uh, I had waders on, so I, I, I couldn't move that fast. And uh, I really wasn't going to go. I didn't follow it. I just wanted to get a better look at it. Right. Uh, right. But it was simply moving too fast. Uh, I, I could tell, as it was moving away, I could see the pads on its feet. Uh, they weren't, you know, the hair was not there, but they had fairly thick-looking pads, light-colored pads on the feet. That definitely stood out. But it was moving fairly quickly, and, uh, you know, it went into the woods, and... Next thing I did, I hightailed it up to the car, which really wasn't that far away, and headed back into town so I could make hey, a phone call. 
Yeah. Hey, Lon, when you came face-to-face with that, how far away was the creature? About 30 yards. About 30 yards. And can you describe what the face looked like? The face looked actually like a Neanderthal. I mean, it, it looked human, but it had a wide nose, had uh, a brow ridge. The lips were actually, the mouth was kind of shaped like a human, but like I said, there was very little, very little hair on the face. Interesting. Okay. And then you went up, you said you went up to, to make a phone call? Yeah, I, I got in my car, kept the waiters on, I got in the car. Uh, first, uh, before I, that, I, I did see the dog. The dog came back across the river, and I got a quick look at him, and the dog had blood on him, on his haunches. But he seemed to be moving okay, and I wasn't, you know, about to mess with the dog. I didn't know he had rabies or whatever. So I just let him go, but he seemed like he was moving pretty good. So anyway, I got in the car, and I headed back towards Sykesville. The first thing you get back then when you went into Sykesville there along the river, there was a bar there. So I got on to a payphone and called the, uh, I called the, uh, Sykesville Police Department. They told me, well, go back and we'll meet you there. That's all they told me. I said, okay. So I got in the car, went back again, and it only took about three or four minutes. It wasn't before away. It was about a mile. And when I got there, the state police were already there, and they were actually putting up tape to cordon off the area. Uh, when I first, when I, when I got there at that time, there was two cars there. There was a uh, unmarked police, uh, and I think it was count. I mean, state. Excuse me. I think it was state. And then there was a state police officer. Uh, so I didn't see anything else. And I told the, uh, I told the the state policeman, look, I made the call talked to uh Sykesville police and said that's fine. We don't you can't be here. You know, this is an investigation. You can't be here. Just leave the area. And uh I tried to argue with him, tell him what I had seen, but he didn't want to hear me. I turned around and went home. Now at that time I lived in Sykesville, so it wasn't that far away. <clears throat> that's so, a very fast response on their part. Yeah, yeah, and that and that the reason and the only thing I could figure was that they were, that they just had to be tracking. I, I think they were tracking it. You know, I don't know if there was a government thing involved with this or what it was, but, you know, it, the response time was just unbelievable. Our, our friend Robbie Shaw sent me some information. He said there was a newspaper article around that time frame about something eating children in the area. Do you know anything about that? You know, I heard something about that. But uh, I, you know, when at that time I wasn't living there then, you know, when the original sightings started back in '72 and '73, I wasn't living. I wasn't living in Sykesville. I wasn't even living in Maryland, so I didn't know the full story of what had happened. I, you know, I only found that I only actually started investigating after I had my sighting. But, uh, no, I, you know, I had heard that, but I, I didn't pay that much attention. I was just sort of curious what. Um yeah, I don't know what that was all about. Uh, I don't know if it was tied to this or tied to something else. I, I will say the area itself is near a state park, part of the uh, that river runs within the Patapsco State Park, and there have, have been a lot of anomalies in that park over the years. Now, you saw it was just the state police that were there, right? You didn't see the day of helicopters the first, or anything? Yeah, when, just... I, when I went back the first time, yeah. Okay. So when I went back home, I came back about an hour later. I went to see what was going on. 
So I went and I parked. Well, there were, there were actually cars parked up and down the river before you got to the Cordonoff area. So I parked a little bit away from the original area and walked up toward the cave, and there were a couple of state policemen there. None of the local cops were there. None of the, looks, uh, none of the county cops, which was Howard County back then, and uh, none of uh, the Sykesville police were there. They got run off. And uh, I happened to talk to one of the state police who was standing there by the tape, and I could see there were people moving in and out of bushes and stuff. Uh, I heard helicopters, didn't see any, but there were uh, black vehicles parked down the road further. I saw two of those. They were, uh, I think they were Crown Victorias, but they were black. And I don't think they were state. I'm quite sure they were federal. But they had dogs. Uh, they had dogs uh, going through the area. I asked, you know, I asked the state cop, I said, you know, what are they looking for? I didn't tell him that I had seen and made the report. He said somebody somebody had a, a Bigfoot report. Wow. He came right out. And with I it. told him, I said, was it uh and I, and I you know, I had heard of the Sykesville monster. I said, Was it the Sykesville monster? And he started laughing, he said, I don't know. He said he said, I know they found they, they found some hair, but I don't know what you know, what it was. And that's the only thing that's the only thing I've ever you know, heard from anybody there that they found hair. Well, you know, they weren't sure what they you know, what kind of hair it was. Right, but right. I think they were there from and from somebody I talked to later on, who happened to know of the incident. Uh, they were there for about four or five hours that day. It was a pretty serious investigation. Yeah, oh yeah, they were going through it pretty good. You know, I don't know. You know, I couldn't see everything they were doing, but it was a it, like you said, it was a very serious investigation. They were they were looking for something. The fact that they were only there that amount of time, to me, seems I seem to think they found something. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you're calling a Bigfoot report, and there's this reaction from the government. I mean, gosh, it makes you want to almost look up to see what happened historically prior to your encounter, Lon, to see if there was. Yeah, that's what I did. Yeah, I, you know, that's why I did my own investigation. I will say this. This area is not far from the Baltimore, Washington area. It's considered Baltimore, Washington metro. Uh, so we're near a lot of government installations, a lot of secret government installations as well. There, is, there was, at the time, there was a, um, a federal work program facility about seven or eight miles down river. A lot of times when people call a Bigfoot report, you know, a sheriff or a local police will come out grudgingly you know they'll they'll take a quick look around and kind of laugh the whole thing off but when something serious happens you know for instance where Wes and Woody had their encounter about a year and a half ago uh, right near their last Labor Day um, a lady who was doing a uh, left the campground was walking off to do a vision quest disappeared and Wes can tell you what about the vehicles they saw and I also have another independent witness that verified what they saw up there in the way of vehicles. If you want to talk about that, Wes? Yeah, right about that same time the military was swarming that area, there was, uh, I mean, it was a, they were showing force. A force of military was coming into presence in that area. There was helicopters flying around. There was um, Humvees. There was, you know, like in Rambo when, I don't know what kind of truck it is, but you know those where the, it's 
it's almost got like a canvas on the back, like they're going to carry Two storage. Or truck. Yeah, right. the, a bunch of those were going up there. They had maps out on top of the Humvees and were and making marks on the map. Map and they had just swarmed the whole area. See, and, and that's so not it, a training area. No, it's not. There's and no military nowhere. training area up there at all. Yeah, there's not. It's in the middle of nowhere. So I mean, there's really. The, I think the nearest military base is probably Fort Lewis, which is what well two hours away. Three hours away. Yeah, right, right. So it makes you wonder about uh, looking back. What's your theory, Lon? I mean, why do you think there was such a uh, a response, and why do you think there was such a, a presence that they made known in that area? And you're just calling it a Bigfoot report. Why do you think that they? Why do you think that they made their? Know. You know, it's one of those things. You know, I um, this is something I've been warning for over thirty years now. Uh, you know, I go into the media, and the day that same day. There were three TV stations in Baltimore. I contacted all three. They all three seemed interested, and they were going to check into it. Next day, I called back, asked if they heard of it, and they didn't want to talk to me. Isn't that interesting? Hmm. Yeah, that is. Let me ask you this. When you yeah. saw the creature, what did you think? Going outside of the, the whole government cover-up, but when you actually saw the creature, what, did, what was going through your mind? I, I don't know. I just thought it was some naked guy running around just been hairy, first of all. And just a hairy guy, but you know, when I got a closer look, when it came out of the bushes, and I, you know, I could see what it was, and then I could really tell how, you know, how huge it was. But it was, it was a good seven foot. And I knew oh. it definitely wasn't a human. But you know, a lot of the sightings that I have, um, and of course, the people I talked to after this uh, in Sykesville, they they all fairly, gave fairly the same type of uh, description. It was like a. Uh, like a Neanderthal, like a caveman, uh, you know, early human. Yeah, we've heard that uh, a few you times. You know, I, after after my you know after my sighting, I became interested. I wanted to find out what was going on. I had heard of the Sykesville monster from the seventies, but I didn't really pay that too much mind. I didn't know what that was until I started investigating myself. Then, of course, I started going over everything that was in the Baltimore African America Afro American news accounts. They did the original, the original pieces. I knew some of the people that lived in the area where these sightings were. It was in South South Sykesville near the river. This was an Afri- African American community, and all the sightings, all the early sightings, were from these people in this community. And uh, I got to interview several of them talk to people within the families and I, you know, there were originally three reports made for the first, you know, in the flat back at 73, but after I got done doing my reports, my investigation, talking to people in another town just just up the river in Catherine, Maryland, I came up with eight other sightings and eight other encounters. This whatever it was then was breaking into chicken pens and and into garages. One actually got into somebody's house. Good lord! Really? Yeah. While they were while they were yeah. home, or they, they weren't home. No, the house they weren't home. What did it do once it broke into the house? They never really told me much of damage other than uh, the door being busted. But they, you know there was like leaves and stuff in the house. It was a kitchen. It was a kitchen door. It was back of the house, and I, you know they, they said the lease was in the kitchen, but there was leaves and stuff. But it did bust through the door. Did they say how they knew it was that creature, or not? Not a person? 
Well, they, you know, they just assumed it was that because it was oh, around gotcha. the same time. And I, I, I think, you know, the way he described the door, the way it was busted, some big busted door. <laughs> I got gotcha. you. Yeah, it was, uh, it really tore it up pretty bad from what I, what I was told. I got gotcha. you. Well, you know, I, there, there is one more thing I want to tell you, and um, yeah, please do. I, you know, I didn't, sure. I didn't cover this in the uh, on the show, and in fact, I did write about it later. You know, over the years, I, you know, I attempted to get as much information as I could about this. My encounter was in '81, so in 1984, I think it was 1984. Uh, this now, this is a few years after my encounter. I happened upon. Uh, an older gentleman whose name was Atlas Phil. Uh, he was fishing on Piney Run near Marysville, Maryland. It's a small stream that actually runs parallel and empties into the, uh, into the uh, Patapsco River. I was out trying out a new fly rod that day and I, you know, I confronted, confronted Phil as he was packing up his gear. So we just started talking about a few odds and ends. I guess we talked about a half an hour when he said he mentioned something about Skeletal, skeletal remains of a large human being found on the south bank of, of Piney Run a couple of weeks prior to that. And uh, he said that another fisherman had chanced upon the bones while he wandered off the trail. Now, that was a real thick area back there on the other side. I, you know, if I, I didn't know there was a trail back there. But he said after the discovery, the man simply mentioned to a few other fishermen that were around there, that there were bones in the direction he was gesturing to in the area. So Phil said that he and like, his companion, they walked over to the other side of the stream to take a look at the remains. Uh, he said that some of the bones were obviously missing, uh, but there was a skull without a jawbone, as well as vertebrae, a few ribs, and long bones of the arm and leg. But they were somewhat scattered out. So, But he said another visible tissue... But there was a small, few small desiccated patches of reddish brown fur scattered around. So Phil said that both he and his companion both muttered to each other at the same time, where are the clothes? Then, and then Phil said, he said, this was just too big to be a human. And this was before they had cell phones, of course. So what they did, Phil's companion walked over to a small store by the Patapsco River Bridge to, uh, to call the police. As they waited for the authorities, Phil took out his fish tape and measured the upper arm bone, which I think was a humerus. They said he remembered it measured 22 inches. You know, Phil's observations and conclusions were that it, it measured something the size of a large ape of grill. I mean, after he had checked it out, he uh, and he said that the skull looked very much human but larger. So in this instance, now after the, the Baltimore County Police and State Police arrived, they, everybody was advised to leave the area. Uh, so Phil said they, you know, they were placing this uh, crime scene tape across the road so nobody could get within 300 yards of the location. Uh, he said he and a few others hung around the general store by the railroad tracks so they could see who was coming in and out seen. There was an unmarked helicopter bringing people on site, as well as several unmarked vehicles. And these vehicles he described were very similar to the ones I had on my encounter. You know, I had mentioned this. I had actually mentioned this to the BFRO uh, investigator 
when I first made my report back in 95 when BFROs started taking reports. But, you know, this this as well, there was never any mention in the local news. So, you know, this this was just another type of weird incident that, you know, the, you know something was found this time, and they had all kinds of unknown people coming in and out of there. So what they, you know, other than that, what they found, I don't know. But this one, this gentleman, you know, and I don't know who Phil's background was, or anything else, but I'm just going from what he told me. You know, he didn't know me. We never even started talking about Bigfoot, and that just came out in the conversation. Well, it's interesting uh, that they, where uh, those remains went to. Yeah. And, well, that's just it, where to go to. Yeah, I and mean, it's just one of those things. I, you know, this is just something else that, you know, some other weird incidents that's, that's happened. I mean, like, I think you're getting ready to say, you know, the government knows where these things are around, and they've been checking you know, they, they've been looking at it. They make people think that they're not interested or, you know, but they are. They're, they're interested. Oh, yeah. We've had plenty of indicators that say that. Yeah, yeah we have had plenty of uh, government people tell us that, too. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I have as well. Yeah, most of them don't want to go on record, and I respect that. But behind yeah, the scenes, they'll, they'll tell you that they know what's going on. I know Will and I have talked to several people from – that are government, federal employees that, that have come right out and said that <laughs> they know what's going on, you know. Yeah, so, they've been told I point mean, blank not to talk about it. And... You know, if I had never witnessed what I witnessed as far as as fast as they got there on my encounter, well, I probably wouldn't believe them either. Yeah. Well, we appreciate it, Long. We appreciate you coming on. I appreciate you yeah, no uh, sharing your Experience. I honestly had never heard your story before until last week, and then I thought, "Wow, what a cool encounter!" I, I can't believe I've never come across this one. Like yeah, I said, thank I was you excited. Yeah, I was excited to talk with you, so I really do appreciate it. That's no problem. Yeah, we we've been looking forward to it all week. Well, you know, I, I, I you know after the show aired, then now I'm getting a lot of calls. People are are interested now, so you know, it's just <laughs> I kind of expected that. So yeah, yeah. All right, Lon. Well, you have yourself a good night. Okay, I, you take care now. You too. Everyone go to audibletrial.com forward slash Bigfoot Hotspot. We have an upcoming expedition this July. We'd like to fly out five of our listeners to the Pacific Northwest, to several locations that we have between the Columbia River and Mount St. Helens, as well as a few burial sites or possible burial sites. Uh, it's only possible if we can reach a target of 5,000 free trials from Audible. Again, the website is audibletrial.com forward slash Bigfoot Hotspot. If you have an Audible account, you can enter our drawing by donating through PayPal. Uh, every $10, get your name into the drawing. We'll have the drawing in May and the expedition in July. All you need for PayPal is the email address bigfoothotspotradio at gmail.com and the amount you'd like to send want to thank everyone for your continued support, and good luck to everyone out there. Thanks for listening tonight, everyone, and have a good night. Have a good night, everyone. <laughs>